The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. This is very much a part, especially of American Christianity. In fact, we have this hymn, No Creed But Christ. And you see this. You see almost a suspicion towards creeds, towards confessions, towards catechisms among American Christians. But it's not just something American Christians are susceptible to. It's something we seem to be especially susceptible to in the 21st century. I think we can answer this with a number of things. I think one thing is we just need to be reminded that there is a healthy relationship to the past. We see in Roman Catholic traditions an unhealthy relationship to the past, where tradition is elevated. It's elevated to the point of being right along Scripture as an authority. And that would be an unhealthy use and respect in looking to the past. But there is a healthy use of the past and a healthy respect for the past. And we need to recover that. We especially need to recover that as Christians. It was Virgin who once said, I find it odd that Christians who think so highly of what the Holy Spirit teaches them think so little of what the Holy Spirit teaches others also. And so when we ignore church history, when we ignore the rich creeds, the confessions, the catechisms that come to us from the past, one of the things we are saying in effect is the Holy Spirit has not been at work from the first century to the 21st century. And whatever was happening in those 2,000 years, it's of no consequence for us. It's of no meaning for us. I don't think we want to say that. I think instead we want to say we have scripture and every generation, every age of the church is called upon to study scripture, to understand scripture, to proclaim scripture, and to live that scripture out. What we have in church history, what we have in the creeds, is centuries, two millennia of models, of examples, of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us, who have taken God's word and applied it to the challenges of the day and to the exigencies of the day. We need to pay attention to that. We need to bring that into our own moment and learn from the past. So I would just encourage my fellow Christians of the 21st century to just have a healthy respect for the church of the past and look to that church of the past for help as we fulfill our calling to be Christ's faithful disciples in this age and in this present moment. Okay. Well, that was Dr. Stephen Nichols. And an emphasis he was making is obviously the importance of history, especially that we as Christians have a healthy appreciation for our brothers and sisters who have gone before us and developed creeds and confessions that teach and summarize what it is that that we believe as Christians. This is um, our faith is a historic faith. He made a good point about really the, the arrogance of ignoring the past as if the Holy Spirit hadn't been working for a couple thousand years. And as we go through the book of Acts, it's so relevant. As we're going through Acts, we're given this vision of what Jesus calls us to be as his church. And I want you to see 
that we're not only connected to that first century church, but to the church over the centuries. The church is, is, think of it like a structure. It's built on the foundation that's laid by the apostles that we're reading about in Acts. And we're on the 21st floor. We're resting upon floors, depending upon floors or centuries of the Christian faith below us. Another point that Dr. Nichols made is that Scripture, of course, is the ultimate authority. And and sometimes people can be threatened by creeds and confessions and traditions. So so he made it clear, Scripture is is our ultimate authority. And there's there's an unhealthy relationship to tradition if if we put it on that same level. But it's unhealthy also to ignore Christian tradition because it's so rich. And it's a blessing to us. So, some of you are going to love this. And others, you're going to be tempted to think that we're getting too traditional. And that tradition is synonymous to being cold and mechanical or rote. But please remember, you have your own traditions, don't you? And your holiday and your family traditions and... And what they are to you is likely warm and inviting and nostalgic and wonderful. So traditions aren't inherently cold and rote. It's up to you. It's up to your attitude about them. It's up to you because likewise, you know, reading your Bible can be cold and rote. Praying can be cold and rote. Partaking in communion may only be a ritual for some, but that's not what they are. With the right attitude of all of these, all of these can and should be warm and rich. I also want us to um, grow in our understanding of worship, the various elements and and the role that you have to play, that we, as a 21st century church, we need to resist thinking of worship, worship services. We need to resist thinking of them like consumers, because that's a, that's that's the great temptation that we have today, to think of this like consumers, like, like you're this passive, um, having this passive commercialized experience where, where we behave like an audience and we expect to be entertained. That's not what church is. That's not what worship is. Church is not entertainment. It's about, it's about gathering as Christ's body with the expectation that our various participations in worship... I, I want you to really get this. You're, you're coming together... All of the elements of worship, these habits that we do, these various participations, that they, God is using these things little by little to change us. It's different than anything else you do in the week. That's what's so special about this. Little by little, God is using this time to calibrate your heart toward Him and to love Him more. And it may be hard to perceive, but that's what's happening over time. 
For example, are you thankful for God's word? Well, after reading God's word, you have an opportunity to express it by declaring thanks be to God. And little by little, expressing it as a part of worship has an effect upon our hearts. It's powerful and encouraging to our souls to express with our mouths what we believe as Christians. So I'd like to incorporate some of our historic Christian creeds. Uh, giving you, giving us the opportunity to declare what we believe and be changed. So I hope you'll approach this with, with a good expectation of worship and joy and, and a thankfulness to God for the gift of His church that came before us. With this in mind, I'd like to begin with the Apostles' Creed and do this for many weeks to come as a part of our active participation in worship. And eventually, well, we're going to mix in some others, but for now, let's start with one of the oldest and most basic summary statements of our faith. And as a note, if, if you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it uses the word Catholic. So I just want to warn you, don't be confused, it's not a reference to Roman Catholicism. The word Catholic simply means universal. And so it's a statement that we believe in the one true church across all times, places, and peoples. It's not a reference to Roman Catholicism. Here's one introduction to this historic creed. Uh, this writer says, Perhaps the most useful feature of the creed is its balanced picture of Christ. This creed reminds us that the Lord who came first to rescue us will come a second time to judge us. This is what the church confesses in the Apostles' Creed, that we are saved by Jesus from Jesus. It is on this basis alone that believers are now forgiven, will one day be raised, and will forever live with Christ. So if you're able, please stand and, and recite with me the Apostles' Creed. Ready, begin. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. It'd be good to memorize, right? Maybe over these weeks we will, we won't even need these slides. Oh, we'll have them anyway. Let's pray together. Father, we do believe, and there's no room for boasting in ourselves for this, because it's only by your grace that we do. It's not our own doing, it's your gift. It's not our works. 
For we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus in order to do good works. Works you have sovereignly prepared for us and worked in us for the sake of your glory. Lord Jesus, thank you for your church that you have called us to be a part of something that extends both globally and throughout time. Help us to be a witness of your love and salvation. And to remember that you, Jesus, you loved the church and gave yourself up for her with a purpose in mind. A purpose to sanctify and cleanse us by your word. So Lord, please bless these, your people. Please wash us with your word and cause us to love you in a way that builds up and encourages faith in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. The book of Acts, it, it shows us the birth of the Christian church. And even though there's some unique characteristics to this first century church, we need to realize that, that we're connected to them. That we're currently living in the kingdom of God. And so our mission is the same as theirs. We need to better appreciate, I think I, more and more I'm realizing this, we need to better appreciate the significance of Jesus' ascension. And I think many Christians, they only view that event as Jesus leaving. And now there's this big, long period of time where we're just waiting we're waiting to get out of here. And that's a bad attitude for us to have. That's not the attitude that we're reading about in Acts. The church we see in Acts, they're not sitting around waiting for an escape. They're active. They're spreading the gospel. They're declaring that Jesus is Lord, that he's the king. And that you'd better get right with the king because one day he's going to return bodily to this kingdom, to his kingdom, to judge the living and the dead. So Christ's ascension is not a departure, it's a crowning coronation. It's a, a declaration that he is right now, and has been for a couple of thousand years, he is crowned, he is right now the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And by sending the Holy Spirit and commissioning his church, he is present with us. He is active in his church, in his kingdom through us. Again, this is what Daniel 7 is describing. It's not describing the second coming. The Son of Man is coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. This is the ascension. And the conclusion is not that he will one day, one day establish his kingly rule. No, when, when he ascended on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, it was then, it was then that he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom over all peoples. And this is what we're seeing in Acts. We're seeing his kingdom extending over all peoples. Spreading from the Jews to the Samaritans and now to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, or, or all nations, all peoples. And with such amazing success, we, we know that even today the work is not done, right? 
Even though the gospel has spread around the world, our mission, it's the same. It's the same until he comes again. We are to go and make disciples. We are to go and proclaim the reality that Jesus is the king. That he has dominion over all the earth. That this is his kingdom. And people need to be at peace with God by embracing the good news of Jesus. Because one day the king will return. One day he will judge the living and the dead. So until then, we're not waiting around with an escapist mentality. No, we live, we live in service to the king by going and making disciples. And we are not alone in this because Jesus is with us. He has given us the Holy Spirit. We begin to see ourselves in these people in Acts. We're the same. The gospel is good news for all people. Satan is our enemy, and he wants us he wants us to be afraid. He wants us to be discouraged by the things going on around us. He wants us to be distracted from our mission. He wants us to be depressed and silent. And so we need to remember not only to preach the gospel to others, but we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. For when we know and when we embrace the gospel in our own lives, it changes everything, doesn't it? It answers the whispers of doubt and depression that make us ineffective in our witness. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves so that, so that we love this news, so that we own this news, so that we're more confident in sharing the good news with others. And when I think of preaching the gospel to ourselves, I, I typically think of a book that was helpful to me in the past. It's called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Classic. Great book. Pick it up. I'll share a little bit with you. Lloyd-Jones was known as the doctor. He was a medical doctor before he became a, a pastor and a famous, famous preacher in London. So here's the doctor's prescription for spiritual depression. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, the writer of Psalm 42, his treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self? Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Isn't that great? You must turn on yourself and say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. 
Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. I love that. That is so good. Preach the gospel to yourself. I should have printed it out, but go to our website. We have a we have like a, a documents page. I'll I'll send you a link. But there's a great PDF that we have on there called a, a gospel narrative, and it has all the scriptures with it. But it's just it's so rich, and we need to read things like that every once in a while. So the gospel. The gospel is incredible news. And it's not simply about it's not simply about a past conversion. It's not just a ticket to heaven that you put away for the future. No, it's your daily nourishment and life and message. It's so good that it it demands a response, a change in us. And this morning, I want to consider how the gospel changes us. So if you're able And not too tired from all this standing and sitting. Stand again, please, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Acts 11, uh, follow along as I read verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's word. You may be seated.
Okay, the bulk of our text, well, you've heard the story before, right? The bulk of our text is another retelling of these same events. And again, remember, repetition in the Bible is an intentional way of saying, pay attention. This is important. The two repeated events in the book of Acts are are this one with Peter and Saul's conversion. It'll be repeated throughout the book. Luke is highlighting the fact that, that these are critical events in the spread of the gospel. That Jesus is not only for the Jew, this is the critical point, he's not only for the Jew, but that he is for all peoples. It's a huge turning point because... There have been centuries of apparently wrong thinking, wrong conclusions about their laws. Confusion over what makes a person clean or holy and acceptable to a holy God. The Jews, they seem to have missed the point. Thinking the the ceremonial laws actually did the work instead of communicating their need communicating the problem of sin and their need to be clean in order to enter the presence or or be in relationship with a holy God. That's what it was simply communicating. They missed the point that these laws ultimately, they ultimately pointed to the holiness of Jesus. That He is clean. That they need to be clean. That He is clean. And He needs to deal with their sin and make them righteous. The law was not intended to actually accomplish this, but to communicate the need and to point to God's promised Messiah. So salvation, salvation has always been by grace. Always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Old Testament saints, the ones that had a genuine saving faith in the Old Testament, they viewed the law in light of God's promise For a Messiah, and they believe they're saved by faith. We, New Testament saints, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise, and we believe. It's faith. But thousands of years of tradition with with a wrong view or a wrong conclusion about these laws, these, these types and shadows, it created a division and a and a judgmental pride towards. People who weren't being taught this lesson. And to overcome this, it takes, it takes something really significant like Pentecost. Where these Jews would, they would experience the Holy Spirit falling on them and, and sealing their salvation in Jesus. A sign that, that they are God's people. They are under the new covenant. And then they needed to see another Pentecost-like event where the same Holy Spirit falls this time on Gentiles. And what other conclusion can they have? But, huh, God is saving them too. They are under the new covenant as well. They belong to Jesus. God is making it clear that salvation is by faith in Jesus and that that he shows no partiality. That his gift of grace is not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. We're seeing also a a transformation in Peter's life and his thinking. Obviously, he knows that Jesus 
is the Messiah. He knows, he knows the gospel. He's been preaching the gospel. But now, his eyes are being opened to the limitless extent of the gospel. And there's a consistency with the gospel. He's, he's seeing the gospel in a new light. That he isn't to call any person common or unclean because the gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. This truth, this realization and right understanding of the gospel, it's changing Peter. Again, I want to emphasize just how huge, how difficult. You know, we could, we could look at these attitudes and think, what's wrong with them? Racists? Why are they acting that way? And we don't have thousands of years of living in under that tradition, with that kind of thinking. So I want to emphasize how huge, how difficult this change of thinking would have been. It involves thousands of years of tradition. And as James Boyce said, from this time on, people were to become members of God's family by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it would not be necessary for them to go through the door of Judaism. To to go through, through that door first. Moreover, Jews who were Christians were to have fellowship. That's huge. They were to have fellowship with their Gentile brothers and sisters who had not become Jews, but had nevertheless believed in Jesus. There was to be one church, not two churches, which is what would have happened otherwise. And that area of fellowship is really the big deal that we're seeing in our text, because what's the response of the Jewish believers at the start of chapter 11? The, the word spread, um, uh, it got back to Jerusalem, right? So this event happens in Caesarea with Gentiles. Peter hangs out for a few days. It already gets back to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church. They've heard about Gentiles receiving the word of God, which is another way of saying they believed the gospel and were saved. And verse 2 says that they criticized Peter. But it's interesting that they're not challenging the salvation of the Gentiles. They're not criticizing Peter for preaching the gospel to them. I suppose they knew better than that. But what is their criticism? Look at verse 3. The criticism is, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Fellowship. It's like, Peter, how could you? You broke kosher. Peter, you know what this means, don't you? If if it's okay for you to go into their homes and eat with them, that means they're going to think it's okay to come into our homes and eat with us. Ah, dirty Gentiles. How could we do that? And we see that attitude and we just think that's terrible what a terrible attitude right and we say that because we know that if we truly understand and embrace the gospel it means that we're so absolutely humbled by the mercy of god toward us that we have no right to be snobby 
and feel superior and look down on others. We have no right if we're consistent with the gospel. At the heart of the gospel is God's grace. That God isn't partial. That he has mercy on whom he has mercy. And so a consistent response to the gospel means that we we shouldn't show partiality either. Obviously not with race. And not with people who dress differently or have different interests and opinions or, or even theology or style of worship. Which isn't to say that we shouldn't focus on a particular theology or have convictions about what's proper in worship. But are we gracious? That's the question. Are we, are we gracious about these things? Do we love other churches in the valley and wish them well and know that God uses them? Are we gracious? Do we love and have fellowship with our, within our own body, people that are different than you? Various brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who agree on the most basic summary statements of the faith, like the Apostles' Creed. So one change the gospel brings about is to, is to make us gracious to others, as God has been gracious to us. The gospel is changing Peter. And the problem these, um, these criticizing brothers have is that they need to know the gospel. That's, the, that's ultimately their problem. They need to know the gospel. If they knew the gospel, they wouldn't be making this criticism. They need to realize that God showed no partiality. By his grace, we are saved. And so, and so our fellowship, it should look like that. No, not splitting up into various cliques based on age or money or hobbies, but growing in our various friendships within the church. Being impartial, being gracious as we value what God is doing in each other's lives. Different stages of, of life and, and sanctification. Another change that we see in Peter is, is humility. Amazing, isn't it? When you think of Peter, that bold and brash Peter, that we would describe him as humble. But look at how he handled this situation. Look at how he handled this situation with his fellow believers back in Jerusalem. These, and you look at these believers back in Jerusalem, Jerusalem and their criticism. What a bunch of killjoys. God is doing something beyond their wildest dreams. Something wonderful and glorious. And they call Peter in to criticize him. Peter, he had just come from Cornelius' home. Where one of the most amazing things had happened. Peter had seen a vision and he, and he went and preached the gospel. Where he witnessed the Holy Spirit falling on these Gentiles in the same way. That he had fallen on the Jews at Pentecost. He saw them receive the truth of Jesus. And for the first time ever, for the first time ever, he enjoyed days of fellowship with Gentiles. Gentiles. Gentiles who were now his brothers and sisters. Incredible. And if not for the gospel, if not for the, the humbling effect that it has on us, 
Peter could have thought, who do they think they are? I'm Peter, after all. Seriously, this is, this is, this is Peter. One of the men who walked with Jesus as a close companion. Peter, an eyewitness to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Peter, an appointed and loved apostle of Jesus Christ. The one that Jesus used to heal the man who was lame from birth. The one through whom Jesus raised a woman from the... Peter! It's a big deal. This is Peter. He could have said, how dare you question me? Don't you know who I am? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. God speaks to me. God works through me. God told me to go to the house of the Gentiles. So if you don't like it, leave. Find another church. He could have said that. Maybe he's Peter. And maybe a year or two earlier... Peter would have said that. After all, he does have a reputation for speaking before he thinks. Of being bold and blunt and sticking his foot in his mouth at times. But, as Tim Keller liked to say, the gospel changes everything. And so, Peter is being changed. And what we see is... Is a gentle reply where he, an apostle, humbly tells them this remarkable story. If we really know the gospel, if we really know the gospel, it should make us humble. Truly. Truly, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for a Christian to have a reputation of being arrogant. And treating people in a condescending way. It doesn't make any sense. It's contrary to our new nature. It's contrary to the gospel. It's, con- it's a contradiction to our Lord, to our faith. Because the good news involves, it involves Jesus humbling him. Jesus humbling himself. Not holding on to his place and position of glory, his deity, but emptying himself, being a a servant to us, being stripped naked and mocked for us, being beaten and dying the most horrible, shameful death for all of us. So really, who do we think we are to act otherwise? And when we do... The gospel humbles us again by telling us that this too is forgiven. (laughs) Oh, the gospel is good news. And the more we meditate on its beauty, it really does change everything. God gives grace to the humble. Peter not only models it for us, but he instructs us saying, clothe yourselves, all of you, With humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, a right understanding, a right embrace of the gospel, it makes us us gracious to others. It makes us humble instead of proud. And it helps us to trust in God's plan as well. When we know the grace of God in our lives, and we know that... 
He is in absolute control. Theology matters. Have a right view of God and who he has shown himself, who he's revealed himself to be. He is sovereign over all. He is providential in all the circumstances of life. Even your horrible, painful circumstances of suffering are ordained by him. And how do we know that? Well, he, we read in Acts earlier, he, he ordained the cross. He ordained Pontius Pilate and Judas. The greatest evil that's ever occurred, he ordained that for good. So providentially, your painful, hard circumstances, he's ordained. I don't get it. I get it from, from hindsight. I can look back over years and see how God has worked. And thankful, not thankful for the pain and the of the moment or, or this, that situation, but thankful for the change that it's brought. That he does use things, painful things for good. So it helps to, the gospel helps us to trust in God's plan for us because, because we know God. We know that he's in absolute control. How can we not trust him? How can we not trust Him? The Gospel tells us that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The Gospel involves God's plan that did not spare His own Son. He gave Him up for us all. And if He's willing to do that, then how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Oh, we should have such hope and such confidence, such trust. Because God is also not absent in winding up the clock and letting this world go and then intervening at times because something caught us. He is sovereign over the smallest of details. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many days you're going to live. He has perfect knowledge of you, perfect wisdom in how to make you like Jesus, which is your greatest joy. So the good news is that God has declared us forgiven and righteous. And so what do we have to fear? There's no one able to condemn us. Jesus paid the price, and he's alive. He's, remember, he's the king. He's seated on the throne. He's ruling right now. Yes, things seem crazy, but look at the spread of the gospel. Look at hearts being changed throughout church history. He's on the throne. He knows everything. He's the perfect judge, and he will make all things right. So Jesus paid the price. He's alive. He's the king. He's seated on the throne. He's praying for us, interceding for us. He knows all of the details, all of your heart's aches and concerns. Nothing, nothing and no one can separate us from this kind of love. So in light of this truth... Why on earth would we ever doubt God's plan for our lives? 
If he is the one who promised to work all things for our good, why are we afraid? Yes, there's pain and suffering in this life, but he's God. And he's for you. And he's sovereign over all things. So so it really comes back to asking the question, can I trust him? And it seems like a silly question, doesn't it? Can I trust him? Do we know that Jesus has already won? He's already won. He's victorious. Do we know that he's already won? Do we know that he'll make all things right? And if Jesus wins, we win? Oh, because of the gospel, we can trust in God's plan. When Peter received a vision, repeated three times, and and then at, at that very moment, interesting, isn't it? At that very moment of his vision, three men come knocking on his door, saying they've come to bring him to Caesarea, to the house of a Gentile. And yes, in that moment, had to be confusing. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He understands, his understanding of, of, of his world is it's turning on its head. But he knows Jesus. He knows the good news. He knows that he's resurrected. He knows the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and that Jesus is with him. And in light of this, Peter trusts God. He trusts his plan and he goes. Okay, and you may be thinking, well, if God gave me an actual vision and spoke audibly to me, how could I not trust him and go and do what he says? Pretty obvious, right? Oh, but we have so much more than that. You do realize that, don't you? We have so much more than a voice from the sky. We have something better than a than, than a vision and a revelation like that. We have the revelation of God's completed word. We have the witness of the apostles who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing the New Testament that, that, that puts all these pieces together, that, that teaches and explains the good news. We have the the same Holy Spirit indwelling us and and bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The gospel changes everything. It causes us to love people we wouldn't normally love. It makes us humble. And if we truly believe what God has done for us, then it causes us to trust Him for all our days. In closing, I love verses 17 and 18 and the response of both Peter and the believers who were questioning or criticizing him. Peter says, if then God gave the same gift to them, the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Good point. Who was I? So, who am I to not trust him and do what he tells me to do? Who am I to not serve in humility? Who am I to not be gracious to others since God has 
so gracious to me. Who am I to stand in the way of God's plan or to doubt his plan? And then you see the good news changing the questioners as well. In humility, these critics, kind of Job-like, just fell silent. I have nothing to say. Their objections were answered by the gospel. And they responded, they did respond, a good response, by praising the God of grace. By trusting him to have mercy on whom he has mercy. It's good news. The gospel changes everything. And it's meant, it's meant to change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, make this the greatest desire of our hearts. To be conformed into the image of Christ. Father, we know that when we see Jesus, we will be like him. That one day at his coming, we amazingly will be without sin, glorified. And until then, I pray that we will grow in our love and understanding of the gospel. That we'll grow in our vision of Jesus. That each day we'll be looking for him in your word. And that by seeing him in your word, in, in this way, that we will be made to be more and more, little by little, like him. Father, keep growing us as a church. Thank you for the foundation and the blessing given to us through the ministry of Pastor Dale. Thank you for his good emphasis of fellowship. That we be a warm and inviting people. That we show no partiality. That families affected by disability know that they are loved and welcomed here that we are a family. May this be true. May this be a continual pursuit for the sake of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.